And tonight we're going to talk about, talk about John holding up that king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. First John is a wonderful book. It is a book that gives us um, a great opportunity to look at the life of a Christian and the assurance, the surety that we can have of our faith, the surety that we can have uh, in our salvation, uh, not because of us, not because of our lives and not because of our righteousness, but because of the steadfast love of the Lord that he has for us. It also is a book that is written uh, to confront uh, eras that were creeping into the first century church that continue to confound us even today. Many of the doctrines that uh, John dealt with in the first century, uh, we, still, we still deal with and we still uh, need to look at them. So as we delve into uh, this book of 1 John, we see as we look at the text, uh, 1 John chapter 1, as we look at verse 1 beginning, we notice uh, right off that John begins his general epistle. It's called a general epistle because it's not directed to any specific audience or individual as Paul's letters were. Uh, it was a letter that was written for the general edification of the church. To whom specifically it was written, we don't know. Uh, scholars debate the, the original recipients of the letter. But it doesn't really matter who the original recipients of the letter were. We are its recipients. Uh, and so as we read what John has to say about God and about Christ and about the life that we are to live as a part of that body of Christ, uh, we can gain a lot. He begins this letter much as he did the Gospel of John. In John, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And down in verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, he begins this general epistle much, in much the same fashion. He says, that which was from the beginning. And when he uses that word, that, we know that he's talking about the Word, God who became the incarnate word. He was from the beginning. And then notice the personal pronouns that he uses right out, right off the bat. He says, of that word that has been from the beginning, he says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, we have held with our hands the word of life. For the life was manifest and we have seen it. We bear witness to you because we have seen it. I think it's pretty clear that when John uses this we and our language, he's including himself and all the other apostles. Those apostles who were with Jesus for those three years, who uh, witnessed all of the miracles that Jesus had done, who were a part of his uh, inner circle, as it were, 
John being one of the three who was the inner circle of the inner circle, if you will. And John would be the one that he self-describes as that apostle who Jesus loved. This John, who Peter asked about John's fate after Jesus had told Peter what would be his fate, that he would be imprisoned, that he would be killed, he looked to John and said, well, what about him? And it would be this John that Jesus would say, Peter, that's not any of your business if I allow him to, come, to live until I come again. It's not any of your business. It would be this John who we know would be the only one of the 12 apostles who lived to die a natural death in his old age. And it would be in that old age when he wrote these words and also the words of the book of Revelation. Many scholars, in fact, the majority of scholars believe that, that the epistles of John were the last books written that are contained in our New Testament. So this was the words of a man who, was, who had seen a lot, who had witnessed a lot, and he was well on, well, on year, well on into his years when these words were penned. But he speaks so, uh, so personally about the, uh, about the things that he had seen, the things that he had witnessed along with the 12. He says, making these statements, these declaratory uh, statements about the witness of Jesus and the witness to the works of Jesus and the, and the miracles of Jesus leaves us without a doubt that this man who we call Christ lived. There's so much record of his existence. But notice in verse 3, I want to look at a couple of things in verse 3 and 4. He says, that which we have seen, again he's speaking of Christ, the incarnate word of God, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you that you may also have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father. I want us to think a little bit about that word fellowship. What does it mean when he says that through Christ you can have fellowship with us? Again, I think the us means the apostles, the disciples, those who were the intimates of Jesus himself. But he speaks to those others, the other converts. And he says, you too can have fellowship with us. And we together can be in fellowship with Christ. Now, what does that mean? What does fellowship mean? What does the word itself mean? If we just took a, uh, we just looked at a Webster's dictionary and under the word fellowship and saw the definition, we'd see things like communion, having things in common, being in partnership with, other such terms as that. This idea of fellowship, 
we see it lived out in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 in the early church. We see in Acts chapter 2 down in verse 44 that they continued together in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and prayers. And it says something very important in that context. It said nobody thinking that what they possessed was their own, but they were willing to share what they had with others. They considered that all they had was in common. If there was a need, they would provide for it. That's what it means to be in fellowship with one another. To provide a mutual support network for one another. The idea of fellowship is a, an idea that could be, uh, could be used for the word brotherhood. We are a brotherhood of Christians in fellowship one with another. To be in fellowship means that we have to be a part of the fellowship. We can't be a part of Christ's body and be on the exterior looking in. We have to get into it and be a part of it to, to have this idea of fellowship. There's, an, there's, a, there's a promise that is made there that we can have fellowship with the very Son of God. Fellowship, we can have communion. We can be in partnership with God. And we think about what he says. He says, this then is the message which... Turn my page which we have heard of him, and we declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now we know throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments, this idea of light and darkness is a, is a synonym for sin and righteousness. The idea of light is the idea of righteousness, God's, God's light poured out upon us. And to be walk in darkness is to walk in sin. We understand that. But he says here of God, and, the, and, and, I'm, and if we get into, I, don't, I hope we get into this, there's some things that are very paradoxical to me in what John says in these uh, first couple of verses, or first couple of chapters. Because he talks about us being able to be in light, walk in the fellowship with God, walk in light. The King James says, if we say that we have fellowship, that is, if we say we are united with, we are a companion with, we are, we are a partner with God and Christ, if we say we are linked together with Christ, but he says, if we walk in darkness, we lie, and the King James says, do not the truth. In other words, we are not truthful people. 
How is it then that we are to judge whether we are walking in the light of God's word or not? How is it that we're to know? John's going to get into that. But here he says that we have the opportunity to walk in light. But he says in verse 7, one of the favorite, my favorite verses, I must tell you, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible because it gives such great assurance. He tells us that if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, other translations will change that he is in the light to he is the light as we walk in the light as he is the light because that is really the truth of the matter. Jesus is the light that provides the guidance for us to be able to be in fellowship with him. When we walk in accordance with his will and his word, we can be in harmony with him and we can walk in that light that's promised. We can be part of that communion that is promised we can be part of that fellowship that he's given. But if we walk in another path, we walk away from that fellowship. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Let me fast forward to chapter two and verse one and let's read this passage. He says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, these things I write unto you that you sin not. When I said this is a paradoxical book, I think I found uh, uh, at first glance a paradox. How is it that we can say that if we say we don't sin we're liars but he says I'm writing these words so that you won't sin we have this guide for our life and I doubt not one twit that everyone that is here tonight is doing their very level best to follow this word in the way that you live and conduct your life from day to day But I also would guarantee you not one person in this room has been flawless at it. Myself, the chief among them. And this is the assurance that John gives us. Yes, if we follow God's word and we can follow that God's word, God's word to the letter perfectly, he writes that so that we would not sin, but we recognize that we do. So in so saying that if we say we don't sin, we deceive ourselves. Of course, John is writing this because there are those in the first century who would argue that they are living a perfect life, that their life is without sin. Paul would argue, or John would argue, that that is not the case. 
The great assurance that we have is in verse 9 that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how can we be in the light? How can we be in the light? Can we be in the light by never committing a sin? Well, we certainly would be in the light if that were possible. But John makes it clear that that's not possible. And to say that we are living such a life as to be free of sin, he says, is a lie. But when we confront that sin and recognize that sin and confess of that sin, he says that he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins. And through the blood of Christ, we can once again be walking in the light that is Christ. He says, my little children, these things I write that you sin not. And I wish it were that I did not. But I'm in the latter part of that verse. If any man sin, and I would change that to when I do sin, because I do, we have an advocate. We know what an advocate is. An advocate is one that speaks on behalf of another. And this is really what Jesus had told us you know, when he tells his apostles that he was going away, we see in John chapter 14 that he was telling them about, forewarning them about the time that he would leave. And they were anguished over that and he assures them that even though he's going away, he's going away to prepare a place for them. And he assures them that he will come back and receive them and us to him. God is making that way even now. He is our advocate, sitting at the right hand of God, advocating for us. I think about, at least I like to think about when I sin and I confess that before God, I like to think of Jesus saying to God, you know, Father, I was there. I realized the temptation. I recognize the temptation that he's going through. Please forgive him. It's hard. I don't know about you, but I, I like to feel that in a personal way, that he's there advocating for me. He's my lawyer standing before the bar of justice. That's how I like to look at this passage and I like to look at it in a personal way for me. Because he is that substitute. The Bible calls it a propitiation. But that just means he's a substitute sacrifice. He takes the sacrifice that is due to me and to you but he's our propitiation. And he says it's not for ours only, not only for those early disciples, not only for the 12, not only for the 120 or so disciples, but it's there for everybody who would call upon the name of Jesus. For all of those, 
he says of the whole world. Not just the Jewish people, but the Gentile peoples. Now he says in verse 3 of chapter 2 how we could know. How do we know? There is so much stuff that is in the world that is purported to be Christianity, isn't there? The airwaves are full of things that are supposed to be Christian messages. Our bookshelves are full when we go to the bookstores in the Christian section of things that are supposed to be Christian materials. But when we read those things, many times they fall short. They fall short of what John says in verse 3. Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. How do we know that someone is a faithful follower of Christ? We know by the life that they live, by the fruits that they bear, by the manner of life they conduct themselves before others, don't we? Isn't that what John is telling us? He said, he that saith, I know him, but keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. We know too many people like that. Sadly, some even in the church. They go through the pretense of being Christian, but live a life for the world. The idea of keeping his commandments being the guideline that tells us whether we are in Christ walking in that light or we're walking in that darkness. It's about keeping God's commandments. But whoever keeps his word in him is the love of God perfected. And hereby we can know that we are in him. When we keep God's word in our heart, we keep God's word in our mind. Tell a personal story will embarrass Brenda, but I can't tell you the number of times I've been in a situation, especially on the highways, and someone has cut me off. What's my natural reaction? What my natural reaction is to speed up, get in front of them and cut them off. That's my human reaction. That's the devil reaction, okay? My sweet wife will remind me sometimes if someone cuts me off, she might remind me, now what would you do if Jesus was driving that car? How would you react if it was Jesus in that other car? You ladies might want to try that one. It makes me stop, makes me think. And it actually makes me change my mind. And if I'm a little angry, 
the anger dissipates because I begin to realize the truthfulness of what she's saying is that the person in that car has a soul. And if I respond anger for anger, I have no opportunity to ever have an ever see his soul or her soul saved. The way we respond to people when they are angry with us, when they do things that are hurtful to us, they do things that are um, rude to us, how we respond says a lot about what kind of people we are. I don't always respond properly. I hope you do better than I do. But I'm working on that. And my good wife helps me. But we need to remember that it is how we live and whether we keep the commandments. And when confronted with that question, what is the greatest commandment beyond, he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So we need to remember that the way that we conduct ourselves and our relationships one with another, how we talk, how we act, and yes, what we put on Facebook or other social media, those things are the ways that other people will judge the truthfulness of our and truthfulness and sincerity of our claim to Christianity. We need to remember that it is by keeping his word and putting that word to practice in our life that we'll be judged. He that saith he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Makes us remember when we're injured or spitefully used as Jesus was, how did he respond? Do I have the strength to respond likewise? These are matters that John saw firsthand and he saw how Jesus handled it and he prayed that we as Christians could emulate Christ in our own lives. Because he says in verse 7, I, I write no new commandment to you, but it's an old commandment which you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, he says, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, the true light now shines. That old commandment that is a new commandment is the commandment to love, to love one another, to care for one another. Yes, be about being our brother's keeper. You remember when Cain killed Abel and God came to Cain and said, you know, where's your brother Abel? And his response was, well, what am I, my brother's keeper? Well, yes, in fact, we are. We are our brother's keeper because God is our keeper. And we have to love one another and care for one another and do the things that we can to help one another. He that saith he's in the light, in verse 9, but hates his brother is in darkness. We see altogether too much hate in this world 
today. I wrote a little thing on Facebook a few days ago that was just on my heart at that time because I'm reminded that children are not born with hate in their hearts. Children are born with love in their hearts. Children are born with humility and with compassion and with love and, and with caring. And when you see two children at war with one another one moment and hugging and playing the next, they understand the idea of forgiveness. You see one black child and a white child and they love one another and they play with one another with no regard to skin color. We must be about that kind of relationships. The Lord's kingdom is one that is worldwide. All peoples of all colors, of all races are part of God's kingdom. We need to understand that we must be like those children and purge the hurt from our, the hate from our heart. And we must respond with, to hate with kindness and with love. When we respond to hate with hate, we don't gain anything. But when we respond to hate with love and tenderness and compassion and pointing people to the one and the only one who can solve our problems in this world and that problem is the problem of sin. And the only one that can solve that problem is Jesus himself. John takes a very uh, pastoral approach when he says, beginning in verse 12, he says, I write to you little children. Verse 13, he says, I write to you fathers. And then I write to you young men. Basically, John's saying, I'm writing to all of you. I'm writing to all of you. I've written to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the wicked one. And here's, what, here's the message for all of us. The message for all of us as Christians is love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now the Lord tells us when he was here, he tells us that we can't love, depending on your translation, God and mammon, King James calls it, or God in the world or God in money. We can't be two-faced we can't have one foot in Christ and one foot in the world. All we can, but we can't have salvation that way. If we live that way and we think we can have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ, then we'll be like those that are faced in Matthew chapter 25 when we hear the Lord say, depart, I never knew you. So he says to all of these to whom he's written, we're not to love the world. We are in the world, but the world is not 
hours. The devil is called the prince of darkness, but he's also called the prince of this world. Worldness, worldliness is of the devil, he said. When we study the book of Revelation, there's two groups of people that are throughout that book. There are those that are called pilgrims and strangers, and there are those who are referred to as them that dwell on the earth. And the difference between those two is we understand where our home is. If our home is in heaven, we are nothing but pilgrims and strangers on this earth. We're here for a little while and then we're gone. But if our hope is on those things of this world, this is our home and we'll be destroyed with it at that great day of judgment. This is what John is telling these people to whom he writes and therefore he's telling us for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eye the pride of life is not of the father but of the world now there's nothing wrong with us having ambition nothing wrong with us having uh, pride of accomplishment there's nothing wrong with us having material wealth Paul told Timothy to write to those people of his day and age, to those people who were rich. He didn't tell him to tell those people who are rich to get rid of everything they've got. No, he said those of, you tell those people who have worldly means that they are to not trust in those things, but to trust in God. That we are to use those things for God's service and for God's glory and for God's benefit, not for our own selfish purposes. So when we think about the material things that we are given, we are recognizing that we live in this world and we need some things to be able to sustain ourselves and live and prosper. But those things that we have are things that God has given us. We are stewards of those for a little while, but we shan't, we shan't put our trust in them. Our trust must be in Christ. He assures us that the world will pass away and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God will abide forever. Don't trust in our uncertain riches. He says about some people who had once been a part of them but had abandoned the faith he says little children it is the last times or the last time and as you've heard that antichrist shall come even now there are many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time now, every time there's a commotion that goes on in the Middle East, we find CNN and other news media coming out and saying, well, this may be a sign of the last time, the last days. We had somebody prophesy about that a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? We supposed to, wasn't the world supposed to end a week or so ago? We get to the point where we know more than Christ knew. 
when he himself said, no man knows that date except Father in heaven and not even the Son of Man knew. So let's don't be so presumptuous to say that we know. The world's looking for Antichrist to come, aren't they? How often do we see that in the news media or in our religious programming? Antichrist is coming. Antichrist is coming. Well, John said there were some there then. John said Antichrist has already come. Who is Antichrist? John's going to tell us about that. He says, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. And they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But he says in verse 20 that depending on your translation, either unction or um, what's the word, ordained. Or, um, there's, a, there's something about this idea that there are some that have been a part of the fellowship of Christ, but they left that fellowship. They left that fellowship to go back into the world. You've probably been tempted to do that. I know I have. It's easier out there in a lot of ways. We can just give over to our passions. We sleep late on Sunday morning. Somebody gets mad at us, we can just deck them and go on about our business. Somebody cheats us, we can just cheat them back. We can take the attitude that, that President John Kennedy had, you know, you don't get mad, you just get even. But that's not the way of Christ. Living a godly life is in many ways the most beautiful and rewarding thing we can have but on the other hand it can be a very difficult thing when you're dealing with difficult people it can be difficult to keep your, your, your composure and be the kind of Christian that we ought to be Antichrist we're not looking for an Antichrist Antichrist is already here and he's been here for 2,000 years John tells us who it is who is Antichrist Antichrist is someone that denies Christ he says that very clearly in this, in this passage. Whosoever denies the Son, the same hath not the Father. That's the one who is the Antichrist. We're not looking for the Antichrist to come. Antichrist have been here. They're here today. And they will continue to be as long as time exists. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. I'll jump down to chapter 3 for a moment. How much time have I got? I want to close with this. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, therefore the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. Do you find yourself sometimes so perplexed I know I do. So perplexed in talking with people about Christ and they so disbelieve they can't even believe there's a God 
let alone that a God would come to earth and die for us. It's so hard to have a conversation with someone who will not even acknowledge the existence of God. That's perplexing, isn't it? But yet, God says in his word that he so loved us that he came and died for us. John says in another place that he wrote these things so that we may know, K-N-O-W, so that we may know the assurance of our salvation. As long as we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Christ continually cleanses us from our sins. Is that not, an, is that not a comforting thought? I make mistakes, you make mistakes, but the blood of Christ takes care of that. And we can have the hope of being with him forever because of that. There's a lot more we could say about 1 John, but we run out of time. Uh, thank you very much for your patience and your at least staying awake long enough to listen.